That's a clown question, bro. Hi, what's up, Bunny? So I'm gonna kick some dirt. He gets on base. Just a bit outside. I'm not the type of player that's gonna be Johnny Hustle. If you don't want me to watch the ball, you can go get it out of the ocean. And welcome to the show to be named later, where we're talking baseball kind of whenever. I'm your host, Chris Gianta. Over there on the other side of the screen is Daniel Curran. How you doing, Daniel? I'm doing all right, Chris. It's been another fun week of research. We got Sandy Koufax. We got the 2005 Houston Astros. It's going to be another good show. Yeah, it's uh, surely going to be a very good show. Mm -hmm. I mean... You've got a, a revolutionary pitcher, probably the one of the first mo first feared pitchers, one of the first feared pitchers of all time. Yeah. And uh, you know the the 2005 Houston Astros probably the biggest comeback story that we've done uh, yeah. thus far. You know, Easily. You, I mean, they literally were pronounced dead. Yeah, at at least in a single season, uh, definitely mm -hmm. the biggest comeback story that we've covered. Yeah. Uh, so. Before that, we're going to get into some MLB news, um, mostly just stuff about, <clears throat> you know, wondering about summer the camp. Yeah, summer camp, mm -hmm. spring training 2.0. But yeah, uh, just some stuff about thinking about the state of our season and, you know, more players are opting out. David Price was probably the headliner of the past mm -hmm. week to opt, headliner overall to, uh, to opt out of the season. And uh, did the same. Yeah, and there's uh, there's you know more positive tests, which luckily these these folks, most of these guys are not really at risk. But unfortunately, you know they have to stay under quarantine for 14 days. And maybe you know if they're if they were unaware, they could have spread it to someone who was actually at risk. Yeah. But what are we thinking about the state of the season now? There's been a there's been much more people testing positive than I thought there were going to be around the league. I mean, every like every couple of days, it's like oh, this person, that person. Like at this point, if we tried, we could probably make a we could probably make a tested positive for COVID team that could compete for the playoffs. Oh yeah, for sure. Freddie Freeman at first base, DJ DJ LeMahieu at second, Joey Gallo in left. Like I mean, come on. Yeah, you got uh, Erod at, mm -hmm. in the in the staff. You know, coming mm -hmm. off a year where. He, finish sixth in the Cy Young yeah it would be a it would be a, an interesting team and yeah the I mean how many but there are so many guys uh going to this going to this camp there's probably around 2,000 players in these summer camps yeah so I think I don't know I you think the if the infection rate is maybe like uh one percent that means about what like 20 people uh, 200 or no. Yeah. 20 people, yeah. 20 people. Yeah. I mean, uh, even, you know, like, you know, the amount of players that we've seen, you know, every couple of days, you know, it is slightly alarming to see, I uh, you know guys like Gallo, you know, <laughs> I saw a tweet the other day, you know, you know, when Gallo tested negative. So it was like, yep. Two true outcomes, positive or negative. Yeah. 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 Very, it is, you know, slightly alarming. Um, but Hey, it's the first time we've had to, uh, endure something like this. So, yeah, that's right. We we do need a slightly alarming alarming drop to go along with our other drop that we have today. <laughs> I had to bring that one back. Yeah, that's a good one. I, <laughs> just just for the audience, outside of the nine people who take that class, or thirteen people that take that class, or whatever, uh, 
we'll, we'll have to bring that into people's worlds. Um, yeah, so shout out to Australia. But yeah, that's a fun one. But yeah, uh, that's pretty much any, anything more on the on the MLB news or, or anything. Not you, really. Any any bad thoughts about maybe this this season might not be played out fully? I mean, I think you can't feel a hundred percent on it still. Oh yeah. We've seen more people test positive than most people would have imagined, and it's only been a week. You know, give it two weeks when when symptoms are supposed to start showing. You know, when does what do those look, numbers look like then, and how? how concerned our players and managers uh, at that point. Because we still have, what, two and a half weeks to go until the season starts? Um, yeah, like that. Uh, we got uh, 16 or technically 15 days. Yeah. So good amount of time. Yeah, over two weeks. Barry Bond's birthday. Yeah. That, good day. Good day. Uh, so, yeah, that's MLB news. Uh, you know, right now – we're probably thinking there's like me like a 90% chance that this season will get yeah. played out fully. It's not like it's bad, but it's not, it's not why everyone's not perfect. Yeah. And you know, it all, it depends on stuff that's happening, you know, in the real world and not, not just baseball. Exactly. Which, you have to, which, which I have to worry about. So, you know, maybe, maybe we'll hear more on that, but pr- other than that, pretty, uh, pretty dead, dead time in baseball that's you know that's what happens in spring training whether it's spring training spring training or spring ta- uh, training 2.0 spring training 2.0 summer camp summer camp 2020 yeah. wear a mask yes all right so now we're going to get into sandy koufax what was what exactly was sandy koufax's upbringing before he reached stardom so growing up, Sandy Koufax was not named Sandy Koufax. It was uh, Sanford Koufax. That was his birth name. A little different, but uh, it's, it's Sandy Koufax, basically. Yeah. And he grew up mostly in the Bensonhurst section of Brooklyn. And he played stoop ball and stick ball growing up. And at age 14, uh, or around there, he started playing basketball, which, of course, we all know Sandy Koufax for baseball. What was he doing, uh, what was he doing playing basketball, you know? Uh, interesting, but Milton Lorry, who is a delivery driver for the New York Journal American, is believed to have been the person who discovered Koufax's ability in baseball. And Lurie was a sandlot coach who was actually once signed by the Boston Braves at one point. And he invited Koufax on his sandlot team after seeing him pitch in the Ice Cream League, which is a counterpart to the Babe Ruth League and Little League. I, I kind of wish I was around in the Ice Cream League days. That sounds, that sounds awesome. Oh, yeah. Uh, this invite uh, was despite Kovax, uh, this invite was despite Kovax walking nine batters in two innings, still, still saw some potential, even though he had like the worst walk rate of all time, but that's okay. So when he played for this team, he would go on to strike out 16 of 18 batters in a game. So despite this incredible baseball ability uh, on display here, Kovax actually earned a basketball scholarship from the University of Cincinnati. And Koufax was also teammates with current Mets owner Fred Wilpon uh, on his high school baseball team. Yeah, interesting, uh, interesting little note kind of led him to having a, a decent relationship with the Mets. Uh, also, you know, partially because of his New York roots, but going to college at University of Cincinnati, Sandy Koufax was the third leading scorer in his freshman year 
uh, with the Cincinnati Bearcats and was known as, uh, quote, quoted as uh, saying from, from his peers, a savage rebounder. And the basketball coach was also the baseball coach for the Cincinnati Bearcats. And when the team needed pitching, uh, Koufax actually volunteered to help, remembering his days uh, in that Sandlot League, striking out 16 to 18 batters a game. And he struggled at first. Uh, he struggled at first, you know, in baseball at Cincinnati. But then he went on to strike out 18 batters against Louisville, which is a Cincinnati record. Wow. And he ended up he ended up going three and one with a with 51 strikeouts and 30 walks and 31 innings. So very high strike strikeout rate, very high walk rate, but ultimately uh, he won 75% of his decisions. And he caught the eye of the three New York teams, you know, the Yankees, the New York Giants, and the Brooklyn Dodgers. Um, this was this was when uh, baseball was huge in New York because of those three teams before uh, the two of them went out West. And the three New York teams were seeking after him partially because uh, of his Jewish heritage and, you know, what, you know, the, the kind of attention he could bring to the New York scene, which has a, uh, a large Jewish population. And the Yankees actually sent a Jewish scout for Sandy Koufax, and that offended the family. And, you know, it didn't state why, but as, you know, from my point of view, it may have seemed like pandering to the Koufax family, um, thinking that, saw through. yeah, and they kind of saw through that. And <laughs> what was maybe even more offensive to the Koufax family is that they only offered $4,000, uh, the Yankees, and a Class D assignment, and Koufax uh, in turn, turned down the offer from the Yankees. And when Koufax tried out for the New York Giants, he actually had to borrow a glove. I guess he did not bring his glove. And he was also very tense, and he was wild in the tryout, unable to control the baseball. Uh, and, you know, that, that tryout didn't really work out with the New York Giants. So two out of three teams, um, not the best impression of Sandy Koufax. But a school sports writer actually tipped off Dodgers scout Al Campanis. Al Campanis, uh, if that's familiar with you, if you've listened to a lot of the history episodes, uh, you might be familiar with him from the Roberto Clemente episode. He's the same scout that uh, got uh, Roberto Clemente, but Clemente did not end up spending his career with the Dodgers, uh, although he did get signed by them. But anyway, uh, the sports the school sports writer tipped off this Dodgers scout, Al Campanis, about Sandy Koufax. Um, so Koufax ended up having a tryout at Ebbets Field. And after this tryout, you know, gave a good impression. He was offered $14, a $14,000 bonus and a $6,000 salary by the Dodgers. And the Pirates actually topped the Dodgers offer by $5,000, and the Braves actually offered $30,000 for Sandy Koufax. But unfortunately for those teams, the Koufax family was still set on the Dodgers, and they took their offer on officially on December 14th, 
1954. And he is known as a bonus baby, which is a popular term for players signed between the years of 1947 and 1965. And it was uh, donned to players who signed for a large bonus and were required to give one or two more, one or two years of major league service time before spending any time in the minors. So basically you get signed and you got to spend some time in the majors, whether you're playing or not. Uh, and I feel that's, like you get like, sued if you did that now. Like imagine a player gets hurt, like in their first couple of years and they're just never the same again. You could probably have a legitimate case. Yeah, I, I think so. I think so. And yes, yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, probably. Mm-hmm. And yeah, the, Teams would definitely not want to do that at all. Yeah, I mean uh, now. I mean, look up, look up David Clyde from the Rangers to see the direct result of doing that. Yeah, yeah, a tough, tough scene over there. Yeah. However, um, and Sandy Koufax actually went the same route, like as Roberto Clemente, in terms of having to spend time on the on the roster, basically no minor league time. And Koufax dropped out of Cincinnati University, Cincinnati, and he actually transferred to Columbia University uh, in, in New York City to take courses at the School of Architecture. But eventually he had to drop out because he was too busy with the whole baseball thing. So let's see if uh, dropping out of architecture worked for Sandy. He starts his career in 1955 with the Brooklyn Dodgers. Unfortunately, He injured his ankle early in the season and was sent down to the DL. And after the rehab stint, he was called up and he kicked out uh, Tommy Lasorda. He had to go to the minors to to even out the the roster. So Lasorda comically likes to say, quote, it took the greatest left-handed pitcher in baseball history to get me off that Brooklyn club. And I still think they made a mistake. (laughs) Maybe maybe they did. Maybe they did. Classic Tommy. So he made his MLB debut on June 24th, 1955, at the age of 19 years and 176 days old, where he pitched two shutout innings in relief. Not bad. Not a bad start, of course. He made his first start on July 6th, and on August 27th that year, he pitched a complete game shutout with 14 strikeouts and a game score of 92 for his first win. He remains the youngest pitcher ever to have a game score of 90 or better uh, and of course, he was 19 years and 240 days old at that time. And he pitched. Oh, yeah, I didn't realize you were doing that. <laughs> no, it's I, fine. I, I, did, I did not pick that up at all. Oh, uh, it was low volume. It was. <laughs> all right, there we go. You could probably just edit that in in post or something. I'll see if I'll see if it works here because I mean. That would be a pain because we've probably got like 20 of these. So. I was not ready for that. <laughs> so he pitched another complete game shutout in his next start. And he is one of eight pitchers in the live ball era with multiple games of nine plus innings pitched and no runs allowed as someone younger than 20 years old. How about that? And Koufax only started five games. Everyone else who did it started at least 13, and he ended up with a 3.02 ERA that season in 41 and two-thirds innings pitched. And in 1956, uh, not, not as good. 491 ERA with a 505 FIP 
in 58 and 230 City Switch. We're, we're just going to pretend 1956 didn't happen. Didn't yeah, you? yeah, 1956, yeah. yeah, yeah. But 1957, 1957 uh, kind of transforms into uh, a guy that's more relied upon by the Dodgers. Um, I call I – call, this is the beginning of the era that I call lots of strikeouts, lots of walks. Uh, there are a lot of strikeouts, and there were a lot of free passes handed out by Mr. Koufax. In 1957, he started 13 games and relieved 21 games, and he ended up, ended up with a 3.88 ERA and a 3.39 FIP in 104 and a third innings pitch. And he had 10.5 strikeouts per nine. And Koufax's 1957 season was the first season with at least 65 innings pitch to have 10-plus strikeouts per nine. And he was the last man ever to pitch in a Brooklyn Dodgers uniform. Uh, if you're aware, or if you're unaware, uh, the Dodgers moved to Los Angeles after the 1957 season. So the Dodgers move on to L.A. in 1958, and Sandy Koufax almost moved on with his life. In 1958, Koufax told Carl Erskine that he was going to quit baseball and buy into a radio station. He almost left that whole thing behind to get into media. And that season, he started 26 games and relieved in 14 games, had a 4.48 ERA and a 4.38 fifth, 158 and two-thirds pitched. And after he determined that the Dodgers were giving him more attention, uh, Koufax decided to just give it another year. Why not? But... In 1959, things do not start well at all for Sandy Koufax. Through May 2nd, he had a 12.27 ERA, a 12.54 OPS against, and 17 walks in 11 innings pitched. Nice. 17 walks in 11 innings pitched. And his pitching coach, Joe Becker, said, quote, he has no coordination and he has lost all his confidence. His arm is sound, but he, mechanically, he is all fouled up. And Koufax believed he was not going to get much playing time after this and was actually hoping to get claimed off waivers by another team so he could pitch more. Koufax was, you know, figured he wasn't going to get much time with the Dodgers, so he figured maybe a, a lesser team would pick him up and give him more, uh, give him more time. And the Dodgers actually uh, did not – give the ball to him for 13 days after May 2nd. But Koufax proved them or proved to, to them that he was, he was legit and that uh, he was there to stay in Los Angeles uh, from May 16th on when he took that ball after 13 days, uh, he posted a three, four, one ERA in 142 and a third innings pitched uh, for the rest of that 19 59 season and in fact on August 31st he struck out 18 batters against the Giants 18 batters and it was the first game since game logs started being recorded in 1904 with less than 15 innings 18 plus strikeouts and less than three walks first game in uh, MLB history like that with that line And he ended up starting 23 games and relieved 12 games. And he ended up with 
a 405 ERA and a 404 FIP in 153 and a third innings pitched. He also ended up with 10.2 strikeouts per nine. And his 1959 was the first season ever with at least 150, uh, 105 innings pitched to have 10 plus strikeouts per nine. And after not getting on the mound in the 1955 or 1956 World Series, you know, the Dodgers had made two World Series prior to this 1959 season. Koufax did not get any time in there. He had finally earned his manager's trust with that last about four and a half months in 1959. So in the World Series, Koufax pitched two perfect innings in relief in game two. And in game five, he gave up one run in seven innings pitched in a loss. You know, give up one run in seven innings pitched in a loss. That's tough, tough scene. Not great. But the Dodgers won the series. Uh, so Koufax was officially a World Series champion in 1959, even though he didn't get any wins. But he, he definitely earned it with his World Series performance. So that turns the decade into the 60s. And in 1960, Koufax started 26 games and relieved in 11 games. He had a 3.91 ERA and a 3.49 FIP. Really good difference there. And 175 innings pitched. Had 10.1 Ks per nine. And his 1960 was the first season with at least 155 innings pitched to have 10 plus Ks per nine. So now we are in a new era of Sandy Koufax's career. It's where he's gaining some more control, cutting down on the walks. So during spring training in 1961, Norm Sherry advised Koufax to ease up on his motion and control the ball more. Give him some, give him some advice there. And he started 35 games and relieved seven games that season. And he, pitched, and he pitched the second game of his career with 13 innings pitched and 15 strikeouts, where he threw 205 pitches. And he is one of two pitchers since game logs were recorded in 1904 to win multiple games with 13 plus innings pitched and 15 plus strikeouts. And he's the only pitcher to do it in the live ball era. So his walks per nine that year dropped from 5.1 to 3.4. And he finished fifth in innings pitched with 255 and a third and seventh in ERA with a 3.52. And he led the league in strikeouts with 269, hits per nine with 7.5, FIP with a three flat, and Ks per nine with 9.5, also a K to walk ratio of 2.8, that led the majors. And he finished second in B-War and led the league in F4, finished 18th in the MVP vote, and his 1961 season was the first season with at least 250 innings pitched to have nine plus Ks per nine. So that leads into his 1962, uh, where he does even better. And on April 24th, he struck out 18 batters again in 1962. He became the first player in the live ball era with two 18 strikeout games and the first player since game logs were recorded uh, since game log started being recorded with two 18 strikeout games in less than 20 innings. That, of course, is because Jack Coombs 
uh, this guy in the dead ball era had 18 strikeouts in 24 innings uh, on September 1st, 1906. So he's the as of 24 innings pitched. He's the he's the only other guy. He was the only other guy at the time to have two 18 strikeout games, and uh, and then it was Sandy Koufax. And on April 28th, however, he uh, Koufax jammed his index finger badly on his pitching hand uh, while batting, and the trauma and the trauma uh, led to a circulatory condition called Raynaud's phenomenon. Raynaud's phenomenon. And at one point, if he pressed his finger, it would stay white for hours. Thanks. I cannot imagine the pain on that. I'm colorblind, so I may not be able to see that from a good perspective. Doesn't sound good. Yeah, not not great. All right. Not great. And uh, then on June 30th of 1962, uh, with two outs in the top of the ninth, uh, Sandy Koufax has yet to allow... Don't say it. Don't say it, Chris. I'm sorry. Oh, I think I ruined it. I think I ruined Oops. Sandy Koufax's 1962 World Series. <laughs> this is this is audio only, so we're just going to view this. Oh. The seventh. Roseboro. Whatever man be has said, Johnny just shakes his head, now puts on his mask. They're all well aware of what's at stake at the moment. Two and one to Mantia. Go back set. And the pitch. Fastball. A big bouncer down to Wills. He has it. Goes to far right. No hitter. Is that, what? is that free Scully? Um, or, uh, Vince Scully... I think it was Vin Scully. I think he was the Dodgers radio guy at the time. Hold on. Well, let me look up when, when he started. Well, because he he was part of the World Series broadcast during uh, Sandy Koufax's uh, uh, stuff as well. But, yeah, he was the Dodgers radio announcer, I'm pretty sure. Because – Wow. Yeah, that's a, young, that's a young Vin Scully. What a guy. And Sandy Koufax's no-hitter, as you just heard, is uh, the third no-hitter in recorded baseball history back to 1904 with 13-plus strikeouts. Is the third no-hitter ever. Or it was the third no-hitter at the time uh, with 13-plus strikeouts. I believe more have done it since. And on July 12th, he had a 206 ERA, a 10.7 strikeouts per nine, 2.5 walks per nine, and a 516 OPS against through 174 and two-thirds innings pitch. And he was on pace for 374 strikeouts and 314 innings pitch. That would have been that's those strikeouts would have been a modern era record if yeah. he kept this pace. And this was on July 12th. That was his pace on July 12th. And on July 17th. He came out of a game after the first inning because of the pain in that finger. If you remember that, that uh, Raynaud's phenomenon uh, on his finger, that circulatory condition uh, really, really messed him up. And the threat of amputation 
of his finger actually existed at a point, but drugs and injections uh, helped alleviate the condition, and he was able to uh, he was able to keep the finger. Luckily, uh, usually a good sign when you get to keep your finger. Yeah, I think you prefer to have. I, I don't think it really gets in the way that much, and I think the pros outweigh the cons. Keeping your index finger. I think that's that's a cool that's a cool body part to have. Yeah, and especially if you're a pitcher. Yeah, I mean, probably need one. Probably need like five of those. Yeah, you know, especially the index finger. You could maybe drop the pinky. Maybe. Maybe if you maybe. if you want to get still, crazy. Still, still, you'd you'd like to have it though. Yeah, you know, if if you want to make a a bet, if you want to bet your pinky as a pitcher, maybe you you could do it. But I'm not. You better I'm, you better not lose that bet. Yeah, you you gotta really, you really you really gotta make sure that you win that bet if you're sacrificing your pinky there, but you could lose it maybe. Uh, but Koufax anyway, Koufax came back to the team on September 21st, but unfortunately for Koufax in 1962, he gave up seven earned runs in seven and a two thirds seven and two thirds innings pitched uh, when he came back. And after having a three-game lead with six games left in the season, Koufax and the Dodgers lost the lead and had to play the Giants in a three-game playoff series for the National League pennant. You can hear more about this playoff series on the Willie Mays episode that we did. Willie Mays freaking raked uh, in this series. And Koufax actually started game one and allowed four hits and three earned runs in the first inning and was taken out in the second inning but uh overall season for sandy koufax was very good he led the league in hits per nine with 6.5 whip with 1.04 strikeouts per nine with 10.5 fip with 2.15 and era with 2.54 he also had the lowest uh quadruple slash line against uh players slash against him uh Players slashed 197, 261, 290, 561 uh, against Sandy Koufax. It's a 561 OPS against. And Koufax also finished 10th in baseball reference war and 4th in Fangraphs war. And his 1962 season was the first season with at least 105 innings to have 10.5 strikeouts per nine. So now this is where, if you thought Sandy Koufax was killing it to this point, you have no idea what's in store for the next four years of his career. 1963, there were some doubts. Heading into the 1963 season, there were some lingering doubts about if he could stay healthy or not, and he missed a few starts in April and May due to a sore shoulder. In his second start back on May 11th, he threw a new no-hitter against the Giants, like you see behind me, where he was actually perfect until the 8th. And he finished fifth in walks per nine with 1.7, second in innings pitched with 311, second in complete games with 20, and second in case per nine with 8.9. And that leads in that leads into him leading the league. Sandy Koufax led the league in a lot of things in 1963. He led the league in wins with 25, shutouts with 11. Those 11 shutouts were the most in a season since 1916. Hits per nine with 6.2. Whip with 
eight. That whip was the lowest in a qualified season since 1915. He led the league in strikeouts with 306. Led the league in strikeout-to-walk ratio with 5.3. That strikeout-to-walk ratio was the highest in a qualified season since 1913. First, first season in the live ball era like that. He led the league in FIP with 1.85. That FIP was the lowest in a qualified season since 1917. And he led the league in ERA with 1.88. And him leading the league in wins, strikeouts, and ERA gave him the pitcher, pitcher triple crown, uh, which was definitely a bigger, a bigger talking point back then. Yeah. Uh, no, no doubt about it. And he had the lowest average, uh, average slash on base percentage slash slugging percentage slash OPS against uh, hitters slashed 189, 230, 271, 501 against him. And his 1963 had the lowest OPS against since uh, he, his 1963 had the lowest OPS against since batting against stats started being recorded in. 1918 it is currently that that 1963 ops against is currently the fifth lowest ops against in a qualified season since 1918 and that results in sandy koufax leading leading the league in baseball reference war with f uh leading the league in baseball reference war and leading the league in f4 no one in the mlb was within to F4, that's because his uh, his FIP was so good. And just to break down, uh, wins above replacement, uh, this is just a little side thing. Wins above replacement with pitchers is a very weird thing because Wonky. both – I would say that both, uh, both, both websites have their pros and cons. I personally – I like the way baseball reference uh, values ERA and ERA+. Plus. It's weird because I think I think F war is better with hitters, but B war is better with pitchers. Yeah, it is odd. So, you know, that's like I think I think fan or baseball reference is a little generous uh, with position player war. Yeah, that would make sense. That would make sense. Mm -hmm. And yeah, position or uh, player pitcher um, B war. I would like it to value innings more. I like the way that. Fangraphs war values innings, but I don't like the way that pitcher F war relies on FIP more than ERA. Yeah, because FIP is more of a hypothetical and ERA is real life. Yeah, ERA is, you know, how it actually affects the game. You know, FIP can, you know, you could you could say that a guy could be good in the next year because his FIP was lower than his ERA. But again, it's a hypothetical. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't use FIP. I think we've gone over this in our, our statistics show. I don't use FIP as a way to evaluate how good a player is now. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a forecasting tool. Like, you know, if you're playing fantasy baseball and you're, like, and you're looking at some sleeper pitchers, that's when you could look at FIP. Yeah, yeah. Like ERA, ERA is probably going to be always the, uh, always the thing that defines a pitcher the most. Yeah. And luckily, Sandy Koufax led the league in ERA and FIP, so he didn't really have to worry about any of that yeah, nope. in, in 1963. Sandy Koufax's B-War was the best B-War in a season by a National League pitcher 
since 1923, and it was the best F war by a National League pitcher since 1915. Also, Sandy Koufax had 10 games with 10-plus strikeouts and less than three walks, and it was the first time first time anyone had had 10 such games in a season. He also had two games, two games with 12 plus innings, 12 plus innings, 10 plus strikeouts, less than three earned runs, and less than three walks, making his 1963 season the only season in the live ball era with multiple such games. Also, uh, Sandy Koufax's 1963 was the first season since 1884 with 300 plus strikeouts and less than 60 walks. And 1884 was a great season, Chris. 1884 was a fantastic season. And I think that was the original year of the pitcher. Yeah. Yeah. And because of one man. One man. One man. We will will do an entire show on that on one particular 1884 individual team. I think that's going to be. It's going to be like our bonus episode when we finish this list. Yeah, I I just wish there were uh, like game logs for that. We'll figure it out. We'll figure it out, yeah. Also, with Sandy Koufax, is the only, his 1963 is the only season in the live ball era with 305-plus innings pitched, an ERA of less than two, and a FIP of less than two. Also... His 1963 is the only season since 1886 with 11 plus shutouts and 300 plus strikeouts. It is the only season in baseball history with 25 plus wins, five losses or less, and 300 plus strikeouts. So this results in Sandy Koufax winning both the Cy Young and the most valuable player award. Obviously. Double dose for Sandy Koufax in 1963. You got to do it. You got to vote Sandy for 1963. And his individual success probably led into some team success because the team went 99 and 63 and made the World mm-hmm. Series. So in essence, Sandy Koufax 1963 was the, the best pitcher season ever in the live ball era at that point. Yes, it was. Yeah, I mean, it's all these stats are, uh, you know, best best since 1913, best since 1915. Yeah. All dead ball stuff. All dead ball stuff. Uh, so, yeah, you know, Koufax was doing stuff. And, you know, this was, this was probably the start of, um, you know, when – when the uh, when the MLB was thinking about you know lowering the mounds because you know pitchers started to be very very good um, and Sandy Koufax was was part of it. Everyone does think Bob Gibson, and they're correct to think that. But Sandy Koufax mm-hmm. was probably a, a slight part of it, even though he didn't pitch in 1968. Uh, he was definitely a revolutionary who kind of made people see the game different. So then in the World Series, Sandy Koufax, he gets the ball for game one. And in his second career World Series starts, World Series start, I mean, he just comes out the gate storming. 
he struck out the first five batters, first five Yankees that he saw. And he struck out the first uh, nine of the first 12 batters he struck out. And then uh, with two out in the bottom of the ninth, uh, he has 14 strikeouts and no one has had more, uh, no one up to that point had had more than 14 strikeouts in a single playoff game. And uh, Sandy Koufax has the opportunity to break this record, but he's got two outs in the bottom of the ninth. So we're going to see if he breaks the record. And attention Bill here. Two balls, two strikes, two outs. Sandy Koufax, who has tied Carl Erskine's record with 14 strikeouts. Checks the base runner, Pepitone, at the belt. Here's the 2-2 pitch to Friday. Swung on it. So Sandy Koufax breaks, sets the single game World Series record for strikeouts. Uh, unbelievable. And he ended up with nine innings pitched, complete game, two runs, two earned runs allowed, uh, six hits allowed, three walks allowed, and 15 strikeouts in a 5-2 to two victory. So then, you know, the Dodgers, uh, Dodgers were up uh, – Three, um, three to nothing, and I think uh, people were, you know, I'm I'm just gonna let Vin Scully set the situation up. I think that's fine. For, yeah, for the game for the World Series, I, I don't think I I can do this. Los Angeles fans are in a gay mood, and so are the Dodgers as they take batting practice. Manager Alston and General Manager Pavese smilingly parry questions about a possible Dodger sweep. Batting champion Tommy Davis takes a few swings. And so does Bill Scourin. Yogi Berra holds the record for World Series appearances. American League President Joe Cronin is still rooting for the Yankees. And so is Yankee General Manager Roy Haney. Commissioner Ford Frick the only neutral spectator, studies his program. Whitey Ford, one of baseball's greatest clutch hurlers, warms up. It's a rematch with Sandy Koufax, who beat the Yankee Southpaw in the series opener. The weather is perfect, and Dodger Stadium is filled to capacity. Koufax walks with confident stride. So there's Vince Scully setting up game four of the World Series, the Dodgers are looking to clinch, looking to sweep the defending champion, New York Yankees. Defending, uh, you know, Yankees have won it in 1961 and 62. So twice defending champion, uh, New York Yankees. And the the game was two to one Dodgers uh, up to the ninth inning. And Sandy Koufax is ready to complete the game and complete the series against the Yankees to win his second World Series. 
still two to one going into the ninth when Bobby Richardson singles to center to lead off the inning. The Yankees now have posed a quick and dangerous threat. Aronofsky is warming up in the bullpen. Roseboro talks it over with Colfax on the mound. In the dugout, manager House hopes for a rally. Colfax and he snaps a curve over the plate and Tom Crash takes a third strike. But the pressure grows for Colfax. Here comes Mantle to the plate. The Dodger lefty looks toward first and then slips a third strike past Mantle. A slow breaking curveball. Elston Howard is next. But one more out and it's all over. Houck is beginning to fear the worst. Kofax pitches and Howard drives the ball to deep short. Wills makes a fine play on the ball. Then he gets off a quick throw to second base. It's in the dirt, but Krasuski has it and the Dodgers win. No, no, it's not over. Krasuski has dropped the ball. Umpire Gorman has reversed his decision. Richardson is safe at second base. Elston Howard is on first, and the Yankees are still very much alive. A hit now, and anything can happen. If he's shaken by the mishap, Colfax doesn't show it. He jams Hector Lopez with his first pitch, and Lopez hits a slow bouncer toward short. Wills comes dancing in, takes it on a big hop, and without breaking stride, throws to first base. The Dodgers win 2-1 and sweep the series in four straight. All Bedlam breaks loose on the field as the jubilant Dodgers try to reach Colfax, who started the sweep in the opener and then also was there to finish it. Ford hurled a brilliant two-hitter in the finale, but... There it that is. Second, that second baseman was almost public enemy number one in L.A. Yeah, it's uh, it's probably <laughs> a forgotten play. It's like, um, remember that blown call in game six of the 20? 20- mm-hmm. The Trey Turner game, yeah, or the Trey yeah. Turner call? Yeah. That, was, that would have been a huge talking point if the Nationals if, if had Anthony Rendon didn't homer right after that, yeah. Yeah, that was game six, right? Or yeah. am I thinking? I remember it exactly. I was... Yeah, I was in uh, the Massasoit common room for that one. Yeah, because I was wondering if it was six or seven. But, yeah, that was six. That had to be six. But, yeah, there it is. The Dodgers are World Series champions again for the second time in Sandy Koufax's career. Koufax ended up with nine innings pitched, obviously, one run allowed, one earned run allowed, six hits allowed, no walks, and eight strikeouts. His 23 total strikeouts – were the most in a World Series since 1903. And that resulted in Sandy Koufax winning World Series MVP. Deserved it. Little little did he know he would be Cy Young MVP and World Series MVP. I mean, who can claim that trifecta? I'm not not sure anyone's ever done that. Nope. Uh, But unfortunately for Sandy Koufax... By the end of the season, he had developed traumatic arthritis uh, in his left elbow. And some experts believe that it was when he threw sidearm for some pitches early in his career 
and Koufax believe it developed over the span of uh, 10 to 12 years after he fell on the basketball court in high school. And a quote from Society of American Baseball Research says, <clears throat> quote, the general public had been unaware of the heat treatments that followed. Koufax went to the trainer about an hour before his starts to have capsulin, basically a chili pepper, uh, chili pepper salve rubbed on his arm. Capsulin irritates the skin to increase circulation. It burns until the arm goes numb. Excessive application would cause the skin to start peeling. Originally, when his arm blew up, Koufax was given phenyl, phenylbutazone alka, an anti-inflammatory pill. The non-steroidal drug was intended for animals and is no longer approved for human use. Today's equivalent is ibuprofen. A lot of words to just say ibuprofen. Yeah, yeah. So Sandy Koufax was, you know, getting some heavy stuff uh, for his arm. He, he had developed tra traumatic arthritis and, uh, you know, his physical decay, uh, so to speak, was kind of starting to show after 19 or during 19, 1963, but that leads into 1964. That's right. So Sandy Koufax's dream 1963 season is over. Time has to move on and he's just got to rewrite his own history. So in 1964, the arthritis did unfortunately begin to take a toll and he only went one inning on April 22nd and then took 11 days off. So fast forward to June 4th. So on June 4th, he's facing the Phillies, and he walked Dick Allen on a 3-2 pitch in the fourth inning. And that would be the only base runner allowed that day, resulting in his third no-hitter in three years. He had 12 strikeouts and a game score of 98 in that game. And on August 8th in Milwaukee, he landed on his elbow, diving back to second base on a pickoff attempt. Uh, another classic example of uh, why pitchers should not uh, have to do offensive things like run the bases. I was know. about to say, Sandy Koufax, I would guess, is very pro-DH. I would hope he's very pro. Yeah. I mean, if you're not, I mean if hearing that, if you're not pro-DH after hearing that, I mean, imagine telling a Dodgers fan, like, Sandy Koufax got hurt running the bases. Yeah, and uh, his index finger came getting jammed yeah. on round ball yeah come on what are we doing here anyways after that game uh there was swelling in his entire left arm because of the arthritis and he then received a cortisone injection and an oral medication uh to to relieve inflammation and he made two more starts with the dodgers uh who were unfortunately 12 and a half games out of first place loss caused and koufax stopped pitching for the year and he ended up with 223 innings pitched in 28 starts. He led the league in shutouts with seven, hits per nine with 6.2, whip with an 0.93, case per nine with exactly nine, a 208 FIP, OPS against a 516, and an ERA of 174. And it was the first season ever, including dead ball era, with an ERA of less than two and at least nine Ks per nine. So he finished second in Baseball Reference War, fourth in Fangraphs War, and he finished third in the Cy Young vote and 17th in the MVP vote. So that leads into 1965, where Sandy Koufax uh, kind of takes care of his pain temporarily and has a, 
an incredible season for the ages. So he came up with the idea to stop doing his side sessions between starts uh, to lessen, lessen pain uh, in his uh, elbow, relieve that arth arthritis. And with, so that leads into September 9th, where with two outs in the top of the ninth, Sandy Koufax, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to spoil anything. He's doing pretty well. He's doing pretty well with two outs in the top of the ninth. Um, I'm going to let Mr. Vin Scully uh, take care of this one. Again, this is just audio, so you don't really have to watch the video, but here we are. Two and two to Harvey Keene, one strike away. Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Swung on and missed a perfect game. Sandy Koufax gets, you know, that's his fourth no-hitter, but that's his first perfect game. Right. Unbelievable. An unbelievable performance by Sandy Koufax. By the way, Vince Scully's voice sounds the exact same as it did in 2016 when he retired. Yeah, that is, that like, is hilarious. Like, if you just closed your eyes without context, you could probably guess you're watching a Dodger game from 2010. Yeah, it is, in, it is interesting because, like, you know, the, the average person might think that, you know, announcing is just kind of talking, but Vin Scully proves that there's an art, there's an art to it. Yeah. There's an art to sounding the you same. You so soothing. Yeah, there's an art, art to sounding the same in 1965 as you do in 2020. Mm -hmm. There's definitely an art to that, you know, Absolutely. sounding the same over the course of 55 years. But Sandy Koufax, this September 9th game, it was the first game ending in regulation with a game score of at least 101 since 1908. And he became the first pitcher ever, first pitcher ever, with four no-hitters, and only Nolan Ryan has joined him since. Of course, Nolan Ryan, legend. And Sandy Koufax's three no-hitters, three no-hitters with less than three walks, remain the most such games by a single pitcher in baseball history. And it was his second no-hitter with 12-plus strikeouts and less than two walks. And Koufax remains the only pitcher to have multiple such games. So, on September 15th, with just 16 games left in this 1965 season, the Dodgers were down four games in the division. So September 16th, Koufax earns a save. September 18th, Koufax threw a complete game in a one nothing game against the Cardinals. That's a shutout. On September 22nd, just four days later, Koufax gives up five earned runs in two innings against the Braves. Not great, but the Dodgers win 7-6. On September 25th, three days later, in the third inning, he struck out Nelson Bryles for his 350th strikeout of the season, which sets a modern-era single-season strikeout record. Oh, wait. I, I, do we not have to do it? We'll just cut that. So, Koufax struck out 12 batters in a complete game in a 2-0 shutout win over the Cardinals. And on September 29th, 
Koufax struck out 13 batters in a two-hit complete game shutout in a 5-0 win over the Reds. And on October 2nd, with an opportunity to clinch the pennant, Koufax allowed one run and struck out 13 in a complete game in a 3-1 victory over the Braves. And Sandy Koufax pretty much carried the Dodgers to a comeback pennant-winning September. From September 16th on, Koufax had six appearances, five starts, four complete games, three shutouts, a 4-0 record, and a save. And from September 16th on, the Dodgers went 15-1 to win the pennant. Koufax led the league that season in innings pitch, 335 and two-thirds, wins with 26, complete games with 27, hits per nine with 5.8, whip with an 086. That whip, by the way, the lowest in a qualified season since 1915. 10.2 Ks per nine, a K to walk ratio of 5.4. And by the way, that K to walk ratio, the highest in a qualified single season since 1913. A FIP of 193 and an ERA of 2.04. His OBP against, which is 227, was the lowest in a qualified season since batting against stats started being recorded in 1918. And it is currently the fourth lowest OBP against in a qualified season all time. His OPS against, which was 5.07, led the league. His 382 strikeouts led the league and are currently the second most in a modern era single season. Him leading in wins, ERA, and strikeouts led him to his second pitcher triple crown. He finished third in baseball reference war and led the league in F4. He also had the best F4 in the National League in any single season since 1908. And that leads into more how about that's, as we call it. We used to call it the fun stats, but now we call them how about that's now. And we're going to get into that in the 1965 World Series. But first, got to have some fun stats from the 1965 season of Sandy Koufax. Koufax had 14 games with 12-plus strikeouts. No one else up to this 1965 season had more than seven such games. Koufax had 16 games with nine-plus innings pitched, 10-plus strikeouts, and less than three walks. No one else in the history of game logs has had more than nine such games. Also, Sandy Koufax's 1965 is the only season in the live ball era, remains the only season in the live ball era, with 325-plus innings pitched and a FIP of less than two. Sandy Koufax's 1965 season is the only season in baseball history with 330-plus innings pitched and 10-plus strikeouts per nine. And Koufax's season, 1965 season, is also the only season in baseball history with 300-plus innings pitched, 10-plus strikeouts per nine, and less than two walks per nine. And that leads him into winning his second Cy Young, and he also finished second in the MVP vote behind Willie Mays, who finally got an MVP. Fair enough. We'll, we'll thank, let it slide. Thank God Willie Mays got that 1965 uh, MVP. Actually, he was, he was waiting for one. 
Shout out to Maury Wells, Koufax's uh, teammate. But that's not even the end of 1965 for Sandy Koufax. Sandy Koufax has a spectacular World Series, but it started out a little, uh, a little interesting. Koufax did not pitch game one because it fell on Yom Kippur. The man was a man of his religion and very, uh, very big holiday, uh, Yom Kippur. Mm-hmm. Didn't want to pitch on it on that holiday. Uh, respect to sticking by his guns there. And in game two, Koufax went six innings and allowed one earned run while striking out nine. But that resulted in him getting the loss. In oh. that bad, uh, not, not enough run support from the Dodgers in game two. But in game five, he turns it around. It, or the team actually turns it around. He keeps doing Sandy. With the series tied and going back to Minnesota after the game, you know, this is a big, you know, these are very big games when, you know, the series is tied and the, the series is going to go back to the opposing team's uh, home stadium. That's a big start. You know, we've talked about, you know, the 2014 Giants and Madison Bumgarner's mm-hmm. uh, performance. His, you know, Madison Bumgarner was a guy in game five that the series was tied and it was going to head back to Kansas City afterwards. That was a huge start from, from Bumgarner. Koufax was doing the exact same thing in the 1965 World Series. It was a huge start. And Koufax had a complete game shutout with four hits, one walk, and 10 strikeouts. It was the first postseason game pitched since 1906 with nine-plus innings pitched, no runs allowed, 10-plus strikeouts, and less than six base runners. And that leads into, uh, you know, the four hits that he allowed. I'm going to – I'm just going to show on the screen. I'm going to commentate over it a little bit. But, you know, he could have – he legit could have had a no-hitter if he had some better luck. You know, there was just – you know, we learned about – we learned about the phrase Texas leaguer, you know, this past fall. Mm -hmm. And, Shout out uh, to Marty Dobrow. From Mr. Marty Dobrow. And the Twins were hitting a lot of Texas leaguers in Game 5 of the 1965 World Series. Uh, it, was, uh, it was something interesting. So here we go. We got uh, – it's the fifth inning. It's the, this is the first hit of the game that the Twins are getting. It's, it's the fifth inning. So I think we got uh, Harmon Killebrew up. As you can see, you can watch on YouTube. And it's a pop-up. And Bermuda Triangle, no one can get to it. So there's, there's hit number one from Harmon Killebrew. If you want to watch the videos with us and you're listening on just Apple Podcasts and Spotify, um, be sure to check out the YouTube channel. It's called STBNL with Christianta and Daniel Curran. Mm-hmm. And here comes, we got hit number two allowed by Mr. Sandy Koufax in this game five. And a little bleeder to Maury Wills. And he's safe. Got in the hole, but not a lot of solid contact there uh, on that one. And then hit number three, we're going to get into. It's another, you know, the definition of a, of a leader or a Texas leaguer. This one is almost egregious. It's just the fact that no one was there. And here's hit number three. Colfax on the mound. 
and catches a lot of air, but it gets in. For hit number three of the day for the Twins. So, you know. And, uh, yeah, yeah, almost got him there at first base. So, you know, you could say that if Koufax had some more luck, you know, those are the first three hits of the day, too. So if – and, uh, you know, he didn't allow the first, like, legit hit until the ninth inning. So if those three hits didn't happen, you know, this is a big spin zone. But you could say Koufax <laughs> would have had a no-hitter. Yeah, if he just didn't give up any hits, he had a no-hitter. I mean, yeah. if you really think about it. Yeah. But, like, he, he had some – he had some bad luck in that. Like, he, there, were, there weren't a lot of uh, screamers in that game. Yeah, you got a lot of exit velocity. Yeah, I'd love to get the – to. you know, I didn't check baseball savant for the 1965 World Series, but I imagine I imagine it wasn't great. And uh, also this game was uh, where we originated this, this new drop that we've uh, – I think we need to continue it beyond this part of the episode. Oh, yeah, we will because unless, you know – Unless people start listening and find it annoying, but uh, Tom Hamilton, come on, guys! It's Tom Hamilton, yeah. But uh, here it is. This was in Game Five of the World Series. Uh, for the listeners, it says, and it, this is the scoreboard at the Chavez Ravine. It says, "quote on the scoreboard." Uh, that's the twenty-second time this season Sandy has fanned ten or more batters this season. How about that? Exclamation point. So uh, that's I found that funny, and I figured you know we should just uh, we should just call a fun stat a how about that. So mm-hmm. how about that? How about that? How about that? And uh, so the Dodgers had the lead in this uh, 1965 World Series. They were up three to two on the Twins, and they lost Game Six. And the manager had the option of going with Drysdale, Don Drysdale on three days rest or Sandy Koufax on two days rest for game seven. And ultimately the manager went with Sandy Koufax and, you know, the manager, it appears so that he made the right decision. Sandy Koufax is about to show you exactly why this manager made the correct decision. You have Don Drysdale, you know, two hall of famers to choose from. He picked the right Hall of Famer, that's for sure. And here we are. We're going to show you exactly how this decision was proven correct. One and one in World Series play for 1965, Sandy Koufax. Strikeout. Strikeout. Struck him out. Strikeout number three for Koufax. Strike three. The mid innings. Five strikeouts for Koufax. Runner going. Strikeout for Koufax. His sixth. Steady diet of fastballs, and Koufax records his Number seventh three. strikeout. Fastball got him. That's the pitch. Strikeout number eight. Strike three. Matty caught looking. He did it. Sandy Koufax gets his tenth strikeout 
his second consecutive shutout of the Twins on Monday on a four-hitter, today on a three-hitter. Every pitcher, of course, likes to finish a game with a strikeout. This was, of course, not a game. This was the seventh game of the World Series. I love how that's the World Series celebration. It's just like, all right, yeah, high five your teammates, then run into the clubhouse. And Vince Gilly didn't even mention it. Not that it's his fault until later on. He's just like, yep, there it is. Like, imagine if Joe Buck just made it like last year for the World Series. Imagine if Joe Buck was like, and Daniel Hudson has recorded the save, and the Nationals have won game seven in Houston. <laughs> Daniel Bradley, Hudson, Bradley strikes out. Of his career. It was game seven of the World <laughs> Series. We'll get back to you with the post-game coverage. And we're signing <laughs> off. Like the Nationals are going bonkers on the pitcher's mound. Joe Buck's just like, and Brantley has struck an out. <laughs> Daniel Hudson goes to shake the hand of... <laughs> Of his catcher and the Nationals, for the first time in franchise history, are world champions. And the pitch to Joe Carter, and that one is going over the fence. And that's a three-run homer for the Blue Jays. <laughs> the Blue Jays have, have won the World Series. The second, or, oh, you don't even mention the World Series. Joe Carter, and a three-run one Down the left field line, Griffey is coming around from third, and he's going to score the Mariners. I've won this series. They are going to Cleveland. And Luis Gonzalez hits a Texas leaker over the shortstop's head. And that's a walk-off for the Diamondbacks. The Diamondbacks win game seven of the World Series. <laughs> uh, yep, that's, that's exactly what it's like. That's what it's like. <laughs> and Chris Burke hits this one in the left field. In the 18th inning, the Astros have defeated the Atlanta Braves. <laughs> yeah, shout out to the 2005 Astros. Yeah. Uh, that's that's the that's the second part of the episode. <laughs> that's right. That's a spoiler. That's a that's a good bit. That's a good bit we, we just did. <laughs> I love that. And uh, Sandy Koufax's game seven line uh, for for the for game seven of the World Series, he went nine innings, allowed no runs, three hits, three walks, and he struck out ten. It was the first postseason game since 1908 with nine plus innings pitched 10 plus strikeouts and less than four hits in the whole world series sandy koufax went 24 innings allowed just one run one earned run for a 0.38 era allowed 13 hits in those 24 innings five walks he struck out 29, and he had two complete games and two shutouts. His 29 strikeouts are the third most in a single World Series, and his 1965 World Series remains the only World Series since 1905 with two game scores of 85 or better by a single pitcher. His 1965 World Series also remains the only World Series ever with two games yeah. With nine plus innings pitched, ten plus strikeouts, and less than seven base runners by a single pitcher, Sandy Koufax did it twice. No one else did it ever. Or no, other other players did it ever. No one else had done it multiple times. But you get the point. point. He won the World Series MVP in 1965. Of course, it's gonna you're gonna you're gonna do, you're gonna get that with performances like that. 
And that leads into his 1966 season where uh, Sandy Koufax and Don Drysdale, the other star, the other Hall of Fame pitchers of the Dodgers, decided to negotiate their contracts for the 1966 season together. And as part of a holdout, uh, they each signed they each signed on uh, not for baseball, but for a movie instead of reporting for spring training. I love that so, Sandy Koufax like has a like is trying to get his personality out there. Like he's trying to be in radio. He's trying to do a movie. Like he's he's trying to be more than just a pitcher. Yeah, yeah, you know. Especially because like uh, players like did not have personality back then. Like you're just a pitcher. You're just a oh, guy. Yeah. As you can, entertainment. As you can tell by that World Series celebration. Yeah. Players did not have a lot of personality back no. then. The kids were not uh, allowed to be. Yeah, no, let the kids play was not a thing. Yeah, yeah, and uh, so yeah, Koufax and Drysdale negotiated together. They held out together. They, as a part of a negotiating tactic, they signed on for a movie instead of reporting for spring training. Love it. And uh, after a month, about a month later, Koufax, Drysdale, and the Dodgers agreed to a deal uh, with Drysdale getting $110,000 a year and Koufax getting $125,000 a year, which was a new record at the time. And oddly enough, in April of 1966, Dr. Robert Curlin uh, told Koufax that Robert Curlin was the uh, Dodgers. He worked with the Dodgers. Dr. Robert Curlin uh, told Koufax that he could not pitch uh, another season but Koufax determined to go one last season. And none of this uh, information came out until the 1966 season. And speculation is that uh, speculation is that Koufax knew that it would be his final season, you know, even though he was kind of going against the doctor's rules, he knew it was going to be his final season. So he just decided to go all out for the 1966 season. 1966 season without anybody knowing so this might be a bit of a tease but before I get into his 1966 I've kind of just thought if the Angels were to win the World Series this year then Mike Trout just like didn't show up to spring training because he was going to be in a movie how do you think the baseball world would react to that because I feel like there'd be a lot of like mixed feelings because like especially if you win the World Series you know that's that's that puts away all the critics who say he can't win like if he just shows up to do a movie like that's Although, like, he doesn't have a personality, people are, like, proven wrong, and he's already won, you know? Yeah, uh, you know, yeah, that would be a, that would be interesting. I'd I'd be kind of hyped for him. Yeah, I'm trying to think of a different example. Maybe, like, yeah, that would be interesting, but, I mean, it would be weird to translate that into, like, 2021 era. Yeah. Because, like, movies were such a big deal back then, I think, but now they're really not that big of a deal. Depends on depends on what kind of movie you're doing. Like, if he's yeah, doing if like, Mike, a Marvel, like, MCU movie, then it's a big deal. But if he's doing, like... Yeah, if something. Mike Trout was, like, Spider-Man's villain, that would be something. If, he, if he's the new Iron Man, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, Sandy Koufax in 1966. Uh, from May 10th to July 5th, he had 14 consecutive games with eight innings pitched, six plus strikeouts, and less than four earned runs allowed, which is the longest streak of such games ever. How about that? 
And on September 7th, the team was a game and a half out of first place in the National League. And after this date, Koufax pitched six straight complete games, allowing no more than two earned runs in any start and winning five of those games. Those, the sixth of those starts, the last one, was the second game of a doubleheader with the opportunity to clinch the pennant. And he struck out 10 and allowed two in a 6-3 victory. And he ended up leading the league in wins with 27, innings pitched with 323, starts with 41, complete games with 27, shutouts with 5, strikeouts with 317, Ks per 9 with 8.8, FIP with 2.07, and ERA with 1.73. And him leading wins, ERA, and strikeouts led him to his third pitching triple crown, joining Pete Alexander and Walter Johnson as the only pitchers to do that three times. And he, he held batters to a 147 average with runners in scoring position. And this is the only season in baseball history with 25-plus complete games, 8.5 strikeouts per nine, and an ERA of less than two. So he leads the league in B-War and F-War, won the Cy Young, and finished second in the MVP vote. So as Daniel just stated, uh, the, the Dodgers won the pennant and uh, Koufax uh, started the game that won them the pennant. It was the last, uh, last day of the season. And that led him to not being able to pitch game two at, or game one, let him not being able to pitch game one. And uh, uh, it wasn't because of Yom Kippur. It was because he was too tired. You know, he wants to be on regular rest. And he started game two, and he gave up three unearned runs in the fifth after two errors by the center fielder. And he gave up one earned run in the sixth inning, and he ended up going six innings, allowing four runs, one of them being earned, six hits, two walks, and striking out just two. Uh, And the Dodgers ended up losing that game six to nothing. And the Dodgers ended up getting swept by the Orioles in the 1966 World Series, not really any fault of, not really any fault of Sandy Koufax there. And on November 18th, 1966, Sandy Koufax officially retired from baseball. That's right. Uh, in uh, his prime. In his basically in his prime, uh, to maintain his health, his health. Wanted to, you know, be able to function like a normal person for the rest of his life. And if he kept pitching, uh, who knows if that would have been able to happen. And, you know, that leads into stat, you know, some final season stats. Normally, a guy in their final season is not going to be on Sandy Koufax's level. And uh, these stats are about to tell you why. There's a lot of how about that's in here. So for pitchers in their final season. His, his 27 complete games would be a live ball error record if Eddie Seacott did not get caught in the Black Sox can- scandal in 1920. And his ERA is a live ball error record currently. Uh, you know, if you remember from the Shoeless Joe Jackson episode, Eddie Seacott uh, did not, or he was, he was a great pitcher who uh, got caught up in the Black Sox uh, scandal took money to throw the 1919 World Series, 
and he got 28 complete games in 1920, and that ended up being his final season. And also, for pitchers in their final season, uh, Sandy Koufax's amount of starts, innings pitched, wins, strikeouts, and baseball reference war are modern era records. And for also for pitchers in their final season, Sandy Koufax's shutouts, hits per nine, whip, strikeouts per nine, uh, besides uh, besides Jose Fernandez, who uh, passed away unexpectedly in, in, in the prime of his career, rest in peace, uh, strikeouts per nine outside of Jose Fernandez, fielding independent pitching, and ERA plus. His hits per nine, whip, strikeouts per nine outside of Jose Fernandez, FIP, and ERA plus are all time records for pitchers in their final season. And that closed the book, you know, ultimately closed the book on his career, but also closed the book on an unbelievable four-year run by Sandy Koufax. You know, people talk about his 61 to 66 stretch, but if you break it down to just four seasons, it makes it even more incredible because it was just unbelievable what he was doing. So his average season from 63 to 66 uh, consisted of a 24 and seven record, 298 innings pitched, 22 complete games, eight shutouts, a 1.86 ERA, a 1.97 FIP, 9.3 strikeouts per nine, two walks per nine, a 4.7 strikeout to walk ratio, a 191, 237, 281, 518 slash line against a 9.1 B WAR and an 8.6. F4. Also from 1963 to 1966, he led the MLB in wins, you know, all of Major League Baseball led that in wins, ERA, complete games. Uh, he was tied with tied for first with uh, Juan Marichal for complete games, shutouts, ERA, FIP, and minimum 400 innings pitched. Uh, he led the league in strikeout to walk ratio, OPS against, and he also, uh, from 1963 to 1966, led all pitchers in both B-War and F-War. The funny thing about that is he used 400 innings pitched as your filter. That's like a season and a, and a half for him. Not even. Yeah, that would, it would be. And it's not even about, half the, the timeline that we're going with here. Like a season and a quarter. Yeah, it's like, a, it's like seven months of a season. Yeah. So now Sandy Koufax is in his post-career stage, and he signs a 10-year deal with NBC Sports worth an estimated a million dollars, which, you know what? Good for him. He wanted to get his personality out there. He wanted to be in radio. He wanted to make a movie. This is perfect for him, and I'm glad he was able to do it because uh, it seems like it made him happy. And in 1972, he was voted into the Baseball Hall of Fame when his first ballot with 86.9% of the vote. I just want to know, 14, 13% of people, I mean, come on, I get that he only pitched 12 seasons, but like, what are we doing here? Sandy Koufax. Anyway, in 1979, he was hired by the Dodgers as a special pitching coach where he worked with pitchers in spring training and in double A AA and triple A and in the regular season. And he did that for 11 seasons. And he would also visit Mets camp to catch up with his high school friend, Fred Wilpon, and give advice to Mets pitchers. And in 2002, the New York Post, uh, which of course was owned by the same company that owned the Dodgers, wrote an article uh, insinuating Koufax was gay. 
despite Koufax having three different marriages with women in his life. Interesting uh, little rumor there. And this caused him to cut ties with the Dodgers until different ownership took over in 2004. And in 2007, he was selected uh, in the Israel Baseball League's only draft as a tribute to the esteem with which he is held by everyone associated with this league. And he is currently a special advisor to the Dodgers chairman. Yep, and that leads into, uh, you know, we used to call it the fun stats, but now we call it. So, and, you know, usually we, we also have uh, all-time ranks, but when you're talking about a guy who pitched only 12 seasons, uh, he's not really, he's not really up there. He didn't, he didn't reach through 3,000 strikeouts. We're looking at rate stats and not count stats. Yeah, we're looking at rate stats, not count stats. Uh, you know, he didn't reach 3,000 strikeouts. He didn't reach uh, 200 wins, never mind 300 wins. But what he did do is he had a .95 ERA in the World Series. Unbelievable. And I wish, you know, there's not a, there's not a lot of um, stat head stuff you can do with postseason stuff. Yeah. Unless it's um, unless it's uh, like game game finder stuff. So wish I could talk more about the playoffs there and where he compares in history, but there's not much out there. But yeah, he had a .95 ERA in the World Series, and Koufax was the first pitcher to retire with 1,000 plus innings pitched and over a strikeout per inning. Sandy Koufax's five ERA titles are tied for a National League record. How about that? Sandy Koufax also had five qualified seasons with a FIP of less than 2.2, and no one else in the live ball era has more than two of such seasons. Koufax had five. How about that? Then doubled everyone else. Yeah, more than doubled. Speaking of doubling, he had four qualified seasons with an ERA and FIP of less than 2.2, which are the most such seasons in the live ball era. And only one other pitcher, Pedro Martinez, has multiple of such seasons. Also, Sandy Koufax had four qualified seasons with an OPS against of less than 550 which are the most since batting against stats were recorded in 1918. Also, Sandy Koufax had three seasons with 300-plus innings pitched and 300-plus strikeouts, which are the most such seasons in the modern era. Modern era goes back to 1900, of course. Also, with Sandy Koufax, he had three seasons another thing with three seasons had three seasons with 300 plus innings pitched and 8.5 plus strikeouts per nine which are the most such seasons all time and the last one that i have for the audience here the last of you know we could we could have several more but this is these are the uh these are the ones we've selected sandy koufax had the three the only three seasons, only three seasons ever belong to Sandy Koufax with this stat. He had the only three seasons since 1884, 
with 300 plus innings pitched, 8.5 plus strikeouts per nine, and less than 2.5 walks per nine. That's that's Sandy Koufax. He was a revolutionary. There's no doubt about that. And that leads into his legacy. What I'll say is he was one of the first pitchers that was, you know, really feared by hitters. Strikeouts, strikeouts weren't really as big of a thing until uh, Sandy Koufax towed that rubber. You know, we yeah, mentioned – He revolutionized pitchers as a whole. Yeah, I mean – you know, if you're wondering why I included all those stats where he was the first guy to do this, he was the first guy to do that, you know, as many this, per nine. you know, yeah, you know, even his, even the seasons that he's not known for, like 1957, mm-hmm. 1959, 1960, you know, first, first season was 65 innings and 10 plus strikeouts per nine. Yeah. It's just letting everybody know he was the first of his kind. He was the first guy to really you know, he's the first guy that you can probably compare to today's pitchers. Um, the earliest guy. Yeah, definitely, you know, probably the first guy you can compare to that because, you know, he was the, you know, first guy to retire with a thousand plus innings pitched and more than a strikeout per inning. And there's probably going to be a lot of those guys uh, retiring, you know, coming up and, you know, especially in the next 20 years, there's probably going to be a lot of those guys. And, and people forget he almost he almost retired in 1958. And yeah, don't forget he uh, re- almost retired in 1958. Yeah, don't forget the career path of Sandy Koufax. It's a weird you know, one. Yeah, he, you know, he was a college basketball player who just kind of mm-hmm. volunteered. You know, when the team when the when Cincinnati needed pitching help, he just kind of uh, threw his hat in the ring, and then he's you know one of the greatest. Uh, strikeout machines ever yep you know and yeah that the reason you know I have all those first season to do that first season to do this you know first guy to get 10 plus strikeouts per nine with at least 65 innings 105 innings 155 innings 175 innings you know like 250 250 innings 300 innings it's because he was the first of his kind he was the first strikeout machine really you know, maybe in the in the Negro leagues, I think Satchel Page was was the guy over there that was doing it. But Sandy Koufax in in Major League Baseball was probably the first guy to to be that feared guy. Any anything you got on Sandy Koufax? I mean, you pretty much nailed it. Like he was the first of his kind, as you said. You know, very weird career path and a lot of off the field stuff that a lot of people didn't know about. Uh, it's it's unfortunate that he had to retire at age thirty, but obviously health issues were getting in the way. And it's it's hard to blame him. Yeah, and also what I should mention, you know, he was, you know, it would have been interesting to see if if he had his prime in like uh, Brooklyn because yeah, you know, him being a Jewish guy, uh, you know, could have drawn a lot, a lot of fans to the to the Dodgers. Yeah, he could have been an an app. You know, he was already a superstar, but he could have been a a crazy superstar if if you know. The house would have been packed because of a the way he pitched and b you know his Judaism and and how that uh how that probably how that probably would have reflected onto New York because you know we we talked about you know his his uh you know the teams scouting after him were the New York teams because they figured hey 
people, you know, they're going to like this Jewish guy who can throw heat and strike out everybody. Uh, so yeah, he should be remembered for that as well. Um, and yeah, that's, that's Sandy Koufax for you. That's, that's all we got on him. That's yeah. Only, only about an hour and a half. <laughs> so that leads into the conclusion of our episode. We want to thank you for listening to this one. Uh, if you are on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, as I mentioned, go to the YouTube channel, watch the videos with us. Uh, it's STBNL with Chris Gianta and Daniel Curran, just like the, the podcast title as, as you're listening right now. Um, if you want to follow us on social media, follow me on Twitter at Chris underscore Gianta. Follow Daniel on Twitter at Daniel underscore Curran. And follow the uh, the podcast Instagram. It's at STBNL Podcast. Uh, we have good we have good Instagram going over there. And, and also, think- we would like to thank Baseball Reference, Fangraphs, and MLB on YouTube, and also Vince Scully just for being amazing. Uh, this this would not have been possible without their contribution to the show. They provide some amazing stats over there. Yep. Shout out, shout out to all that, and also. Uh, shout out to Society of American Baseball Research for, especially especially for uh, Sandy Koufax, that, that it was a particularly very good Society of American Baseball Research page. Yes, to see where I was getting all that stuff, um, and yeah, we would like to thank you for listening to the Sandy Koufax episode, and we look forward to seeing you on Friday, where we're Friday. talking about. The 2005 Houston Astros playing the game the right way. See you on Friday.